Hello, I'm Michael McMullen, and this is the first episode of the WPBSA podcast, official podcast of Snooker's world governing body. In each episode, we're going to go back to a moment in time from the game's history, and today it's the 2001 Masters, not just reflecting on the event itself, but also on how it fitted in with everything else going on in snooker around that time. And joining us for these reflections are two players who have particularly strong memories of that week. Sean Murphy, who was there as an 18-year-old. Hello, Sean. Hello, hello. Good to have you with us. And Fergal, of course, who so nearly won it. Fergal O'Brien, thanks for joining us. Yeah, good to be here, Michael. Thank you. Let's start with you then, Fergal. Obviously, we'll talk in detail about your campaign, that memorable week in 2001. But overall, in a sentence or two, what comes into your head in terms of memories when people mention the 2001 Masters? Well, Gusset was the first reaction. Obviously, uh, I only recently just seen so like the footage after, and you can see so like just when they're getting ready, the presentation ready. I have this like lost, haunted look in the distance. I don't know where I am, but it's not a good place. Um, so obviously I was gutted, but as I always say, um, any disappointment I had, or even emotion when Paul died, yeah, I, I basically in sense of don't really think of it at all. And as I always say, it was the right. If I my time again, it was the right result, you know, because obviously the way it worked out, Paul obviously winning one of the other years, we played for the Paul Hunter Trophy. So in the grand scheme of things, it was the right result. So. Any, anything, you know, any resentment, disappointment, I had to let go because how could how can I, how could you begrudge him, begrudge him that when I said yeah. he was twenty seven, apart from being number four in the world, married just a one year old daughter, and as I always say, my daughter's twenty three, so I've got to see her grow up. So you know, how could I possibly harbour any more uh, disappointment? Yeah, yeah. Course, talk about that memorable final and the other matches you played. But Sean, what about you? It was all very different for you, also exciting, 18 years of age. I seem to remember you turned up with bleached hair at the time. So what was it like for you that week? Yeah, uh, yeah incredible, really. I mean, apart from the bleached hair, I think we all had an M&M phase, didn't we? I mean, Fergal, you must have had a, an M&M no. phase in your life at some stage. No. No? One day I think I went out without combing my hair. That was about extravagant as I got Fair enough. Yeah, um, yeah so the, the M&M phase aside, uh, it was obviously my first dip, you know, into an event of that of that stature. I'd never played in an arena like the Conference Centre. Um, the, the, the standout memory for me was just, that, you know, that the table seemed so alien, you know, from what I'd played on before in qualifiers, um, the Benson and Hedges Championship, which had got me there in the first place. Um, the tables were just completely alien. Uh, and... Um, you know, felt like a, a complete fish out of water, you know, for, for most of the event. But uh, an amazing experience. Um, very proud to have played at the conference centre. Uh, and uh, yeah, it was great to look back on. OK, well, of course, I'm M and M and M. So I've had that phase going all through my entire life. <laughs> but let's talk <laughs> about uh, where we were at at that time in the game. And we'll come to you about this, Fergal, because you had turned professional actually slightly before that class of 92 that we always talk about. You were on the tour a year before them. And I think by around the time of the 01 Masters, we'd got to a point where they were well past being young pretenders. They were now the snooker establishment. Yeah, exactly. The top four was like probably three of them and Hendry. When I kind of first came on the scene early 90s, the top four was Hendry, Davis, Parrot and Jimmy. 
Jimmy. And uh, that had kind of passed. This is obviously Henry was still there. O'Sullivan, Williams and Higgins, they were still like there. They were, as we turned out, they still had more, more to do, but they they were at the top four. I remember at the time, that was sort of like their four matches which seemed to be, you know, sort of like in the legs of the BBC. They were nearly in a row, so they were always the main matches. So that big, that top four was becoming a big thing. We talked there, Sean, about the class of 92 and Higgins and Williams had both been world champion by then. But of course, we're talking early 2001 and Ronnie O'Sullivan had not yet become world champion. But it was probably around that time that he was finally starting to show himself, Sean, to be someone who could win on a consistent basis. Yeah, consistency wasn't a word you would have used with O'Sullivan around that time, I don't think. And this was obviously way before the much talked about joining of forces with Ray Reardon and he was still very raw just on his given day he could obviously wipe anyone away and uh, burst on the scene of course winning the UK championships and then you know if you plot his you know career path from there to winning the world title eventually um very up and down you know it was it wasn't didn't look a certainty for a long time um but some of those early matches that he played at the Masters um you know I remember one particular match where he, he blitzed Nigel Bond um, and he was just making breaks, running around the table, potting them off the lampshades. John Virgo in commentary, you know, eulogising about it. It was just an incredible performance. And uh, he, he he seemed to go from becoming from a kind of a, I mean this in the way, it's, you know, I mean this in a, in a positive way. He went from almost an exhibition style player to a very, very serious force in the game very, very quickly. And it was around you know, the turn of the millennium around that 2001, 2002 period. Um, and yeah, obviously, uh, you know, he, he's gone on to have a, a fairly decent career. Still going strong after all these years. And as you say, he hadn't really been consistent up until that time, but that was the season that he won, I think, six events and became world champion, as we'll talk about. But one event he didn't win, Fergal, was the UK Championship. Now, that's a tournament you might remember very well because you were 7-2 down in that season's UK against Matthew Stevens, I think it was, and ended yeah, up winning yeah, yeah. the match by nine frames to eight. But do you remember anything uh, about the rest of that tournament? Higgins beat Williams in the final, played so well, and he was someone who had already achieved so much, Higgins, but you just knew he was going to be around for a very, very long time because really, even by then, we already knew he was going to become one of the all-time greats. Yeah, funny, I had forgotten about the Matthew Stevens game, but actually I remember a few years ago in Germany talking to Matthew Stevens, I actually said, he said, my my greatest ever win and my biggest ever disappointment were against you. Obviously, that time, 7-2 up when I beat him, 9-8. And then he beat me in, I can't remember what year, maybe 11 or 12, in the World Championships qualifier. Yes. Nine, I was 60 ahead, and he made a great break and tend to win. So, that, that you know, I wouldn't have known Matthew particularly or overly close. Always got on, it wasn't overly close, but there was that kind of relationship you know, I said his his best and worst matches were against me. Yeah, but at that time Higgins just looked more more consistent. Again, when I first in the early nineties was over in Scotland playing in the club in Stirling with John Higgins at the start. He was there as well. I remember seeing him at like sixteen or so, and like he was deadly. He knew he knew what was coming. The full all round game. Basically, I think because he was practicing with Hendry and McManus, so he had all the break building. And mentality from Hendry and you know, all the tactical knowledge, you know, and um, professionalism, discipline from Alan. So it was like perfect combination. And obviously kept that through. He always looked like he was more going to be of a longer, more 
sustain maybe career, whereas Ronnie was at that time, you know, mid nineties, went missing a little piece and was very ragged um in himself and in his game. I was only really not even so much Sean made a good point when he won the worlds in two thousand and one. But I really started thinking of Ronnie as the greatest from 04 onwards. By that time, he'd kind of changed his Q action. His Q action was a lot better. Like everybody raves about the 147 and 520, and it is phenomenal. But it's an awful Q action. Awful. It's just mm -hmm. like literally like a pool player. Now it takes someone out of talent. But as he said himself, he wasn't winning any world titles with that Q action ever. So he had to kind of break it down much more kind of methodical. You know, obviously, he's still very fluent. And then when he had that better Q action, uh, more control he had, and then the tactical knowledge with Ray. So really from 04, he started to really become, you know, obviously he was world champion, world number one, but it was from then he really became, you know, that's when you're really seeing the greatness that he was mm. just then kind of separated himself. And Sean, just something Fergal alluded to there. If you'd said to people at that time, you've got Higgins, you've got O'Sullivan, they'd been compared since they were kids before they were even on the tour. If you'd asked someone at that time, which of these guys is going to have the better career in the long run, it would have been very hard to find anyone who would have said O'Sullivan. Yeah, uh, and I don't think that's unfair. I, I think that's, you know, that's looking back. You know, we don't want to look back through rose-tinted uh, spectacles at all. I, I think that's very fair. John Higgins was... Uh, you know, in a different sphere at the time. He, he was looking a completely different uh, package. Um, you could never question O'Sullivan's talent, you know, the raw, natural talent that was obviously there. You, know, you just, you couldn't question that. But could he, could he harness it? Could he, could he polish the diamond? You know, he was a very rough diamond at the time. And could he, could he polish those edges and, and harness that natural talent that was obviously there for everyone to see? But, you know, he did blow very hot and cold, um, but he just seemed to become a different person. When he did finally win that championship, he, 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 he it was as if he, it was as if he became better when he realised how good he was himself. And, uh, and of course, you know, he's gone on to become the greatest of all time. There's one event we do have to talk about before we move on from early 2001. It was the Nations Cup, Fergal, and you were on the Republic of Ireland team that got to the final. Now, I'm not going to ask you yet again about the incident where you got warned at an inappropriate moment, let's say, about slow play. But just being part of a team like that and all the camaraderie and being involved in a final of what was for a few years quite a big event, was that something that you remember helping you going into the Masters in terms of confidence and belief? Okay. Yeah, even though we got to the final, if anything, I was going in a little bit of a downer because of what had happened to the final, being warned for slow play. And as I said, you could argue whether or not I should have been warned. But it's more so the fact that uh, Alan Chamberlain did it shouting across the table, which obviously brought the crowd involved. And then as I walked around to him, he said, come on, hurry up, TV finishes at a five, which probably wasn't the best advice. And I said, if he'd come over and warned me quietly, you know, fair enough. So and then I ended up losing that frame, which is a pivotal frame against John Higgins. And we ended up losing. So, you know, as I said, it was on a bit of a down, probably, probably a bit embarrassed what happened. A little sort of quiet and reserved and into myself. So um, I had no great expectations going into um, that term. But I said, in itself, the Nations Cup and playing with Ireland, playing with Ken and Mick and the, the buzz of that while you're playing and the others watching. It used to be great footage of nearly the cameras in the, in the dressing room or the... Mm players allowing to the players and their reaction. So that was great. Anytime played with the team is always great. And once we got to the final, the gloss for me had been taken off because I said it was just a bit 
a bitter pill to swallow with what had happened. So if anything, it dampened your feelings going into the Masters. But Sean, you were in there as one of the wild cards because now we know it's the top 16. But this was an era when there were two wild cards in the Masters as well. Now, basically, they brought this in because Alex Higgins dropped out of the top 16 and they wanted to get him in there. He was long gone off the scene by 2001, but they still had that system. One wild card was picked basically on things like popularity or how your season had gone. But the other came from the Benson and Hedges Championship. And there was only one place available. So you had to actually win the event. It was a tournament for anyone who wanted to enter who wasn't in the top 16. And you won it. You beat Stuart Bingham in the final. So how important was that for you in your career to come through a field like that and end the week as the winner? Well, it's, it's you know, it was obviously a great moment. I mean, it was the World Championships in 05 is often referred to as my first pro win. But of course, my actual first pro win was the Benson and Edges Championship. Uh, way back in oh in oh one, um, um, actually maybe it was two thousand. Late two thousand, yeah. yeah, yeah. And um, I beat Stuart in the final, as you say. I was a long way behind in that final and came back to win. There's a few funny stories around that final, but the funniest thing happened in the semi final against Mark Davis. And of course, you can imagine the whole tour bar the top sixteen decamped to this snooker club. This was in Malvern, mm. uh, and it was a beautiful setting. They, you know, this club was turned into a a makeshift world snooker venue for the week. And, you know, there was hundreds of players there, like knocking each other out to whittle the field down, get to play Mark Davis in the semis. It's my first experience of anything of that nature. And um, playing in front of a live crowd as well, in like a private room in the club that they'd created. Uh, And I slaughtered Mark Davis, absolutely slaughtered him. And halfway through, I think what turned out to be the last frame, there were these two elderly gentlemen sat on the front row. Now, they were both deaf um, and couldn't whisper between them to save their life. And I potted a, a, a crazy long red, which had already, I suppose, started to become a bit of a hallmark of my game. And uh, the, <laughs> I think I was leading 5-1 at the time or something like that. Uh, and this, this old fella nudged his mate next to him. He went, here, Fred. He said, this is just unfair. He said, he's much better than the other guy. <laughs> wow. It was really uncomfortable, you know, because it was a really small, close-knit room. Um, very uncomfortable, but uh, great memories. Um, obviously, had had no idea what to expect. I'd been to the conference centre um, a, a couple of times as a young child. You know, I've talked, I've talked openly over the years about my first trip to the Crucible chasing Steve Davis up the, up, the, up the famous street there outside stage door. No such stories from my first few trips to the Masters, except I remember saying to my friend John, who took me as a 12, 13-year-old boy, I remember saying to him, do you think, do you think I'll ever get to play here? You know, do you think that dream will ever come true? And a few years later, it did. Well, I'm going to remind you of one thing that happened that week, Sean, something you said after the match. And I'm not saying this to embarrass you at all, because I know you speak openly about how you cringe at some of the things you used to say. It's not too bad anyway. But I think it was after the first match against Marco Fu, you said, at the age of eight, I told my dad that I wanted to be the best player in the world. And the last 10 years have been spent preparing for today. It was a big thing to say as an 18-year-old. But Yes, as you've said, maybe you were a bit too outspoken in those days, but it shows that you never lacked confidence, you never lacked belief, and you certainly never lacked ambition. Well, I certainly, I was certainly good at pretending that I had a lot of belief and a lot of self-confidence. That's what I was very good at. If they were giving out BAFTAs, 
uh, they might have given one to me around that time because, you know, whilst to the rest of the world I might have shown this very confident, gobby, mouthy teenager, uh, I was actually quite insecure and quite nervous and quite, um, you know, actually quite an introvert. And I know those two things don't go together. Uh, and I know what a mix that does sound like, but it was a good act. Uh, and I think sometimes I overegged the pudding, trying to convince everyone else that I actually was this blustering, confident uh, young man who believed he could take on the world. In fact, that wasn't true. Uh, and I was, you know, I was under pressure from certain people in my life. I was cajoled into saying things I didn't want to. Um, and uh, it was a, it was a tough period. And it's a period I look back on, you know, slightly embarrassed when when comments like that are, are, are repeated. Um but that 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 ultimately was my story, and uh, uh, whilst I, I'm embarrassed about it, part of it, part of it was true. We'd worked very very hard uh, as a family and as a team. Um, if it's not too you know um, silly to use a word like that, we we put a lot into it. And I'm sure Fergal would echo that. You know, in terms of your journey as a professional sports person, it's not just your drive. It's not just your effort. You know, there's a lot of other people who put effort into it as well, and. That, that that moment of reward getting to play at the Masters in 01 as a wild card was a was a big moment. Um, uh, and of course, it, it served to whet the appetite to try and get there again. And it was Stephen Hendry who knocked you out then in the next round. But what a match it was for you because you were 4-1 up, Sean. Now, let's look at that in terms of all the realities of it. You were 18 years of age with your bleached hair, as we said. You were playing Stephen Hendry, who had still been the reigning world champion less than a year earlier. And, of course, he owned the Wembley Conference Centre in those days. He had won the tournament six times already. And you were 4-1 up against him. What thoughts are going through your head at a moment like that? Well, I just want to make a point about the bleached hair. And this is the last comment I'll make about it. I think <laughs> as an 18-year-old, I think, I think as an 18-year-old, that's the only time you can get away with bleaching your hair. Uh, Neil Robertson, if you are listening to this podcast, <laughs> stop it. Leave it. No, but in, a, in all seriousness, um, for being sat there, I, I beat Marco Fu in the wildcard match in the mm. prelim the day before. And I remember vividly having an out of body experience sat in my chair opposite Stephen Hendry at four frames to one ahead. And Stephen, Stephen had an army of fans at the time. Uh, and one of them was a pretty devout fan and he was sat behind him in the front row, screaming abuse at Stephen. You know, pull your act together, get your head out in the game and all this. Stephen sat there with his head in his hands. And I remember looking at the small, tiny scoreboard that was embedded in the set that you could only see from our seated position. And it said, Sean Murphy, who the hell's he for? Mm. Stephen Hendry, God, won. From that moment, scored a maximum, a total of 15 points. And I completely fell apart. Yeah. I couldn't do it. I couldn't bring myself to do it. The fluency that I'd shown to win the championship, to qualify for the tournament. Then I've, I had two centuries played really well against Marco Fu in the prelim. Um I just couldn't bring myself to beat Stephen. I couldn't do it. I completely bottled it. Spot on with your memory. It was exactly 15 points in those next five frames, all of which Stephen won. But let's come back to you, Fergal. I want to talk to you about Jimmy White and Ronnie O'Sullivan because they actually played each other. Jimmy had come through that wild card round. He'd beaten Joe Swale quite comfortably to get there. He played O'Sullivan and beat him. 
And it was the first sellout we'd actually had at the conference center outside of the final since 1983. There has never been anything and never will be anything, Fergal, quite like Jimmy against Ronnie playing each other at the Masters. And it wasn't the only time we saw it. Yeah, exactly. Particularly a pair of them very popular, but also them playing obviously in London just seemed to add it, add it to it as well. Um, yeah, very noisy. And probably you had to probably go back to apart from those to maybe the Alex Higgins days, you know, in the same way, kind of would have seen it younger when it was in Goffs as well in Ireland. Mm -hmm. It was just a different atmosphere, a different feel. When probably any one of those playing, particularly then if they're playing each other, you just didn't know, know. There was just a level of expectancy and excitement that there wasn't with any other player. And Sean, let's talk then about Jimmy's next match with you because he then played Stephen Hendry in the quarterfinals and pushed him hard. And that was completely different because, as Fergal said there, Jimmy and Ronnie both so popular in London. But if you were an outsider playing against one of those at the Wembley Conference Centre, it was so, so tough. And it actually affected Hendry a couple of times towards the end of that match. That really was a whole extra layer of challenge trying to play one of those guys at Wembley. Yeah, it was a challenge that, you know, I didn't really have, certainly against your Jimmys and O'Sullivan's and people like that. They, I think even Davis, didn't he say that playing Higgins at Wembley, it was like an away tie. Yeah. You know, it's Davis from Essex, from London, from the London area. He's playing Higgins on his home patch and he's he's second favourite. It's incredible, isn't it? But I, I, it's not something I ever experienced. I think I might have, I think I might have attended the conference centre as a, as a boy, um, you know, in, in one of the times that Jimmy played. And it was just, I mean, the crowd could be vicious. Um, but I think, I think Stephen, I mean, I wouldn't want to put words into his mouth, but hasn't Stephen said, gone on to say in his later years that he used to use that as motivation? That he used to, yeah. he used to want to stick it up every single member of the audience. Uh, and he just used that to his best. I mean that that particular match he went on to win six four, um, which I suppose would have been one of their closer games, you know, around that period of time. But um, you know, I I don't think Stephen needed anyone to write his you know interval dressing room motivational speech. But if he did, I think the crowd at the conference centre probably probably wrote several of them for him. Um, what do they do? What do they, you know? Never kick the hornet's nest. Um, and I'm, I suppose if Jimmy could have his time back, he might he might send a little word out to his mates in the crowd just to just to calm it down a little bit because I think it just upset Stephen, and he used to use it as motivation. So Henry was through then to the semi-finals where he would play Paul Hunter, and Hunter had come through uh, against his good friend Fergal Matthew Stevens in the opening round, and Matthew of course was the defending champion. He was three one up in the match. And then Hunter just blew him away with three big breaks in no time at all in the next few frames and uh, went on from there to win that match. That was something he was so good at, wasn't it? As you were to find out later, as we'll discuss, he could just turn around a match, Paul, so, so quickly. You'd barely even notice him doing it. Yeah, exactly. And obviously, particularly in the final, even um, like in the first session, like of 6-2, but it was quite it was bad. It wasn't good stuff at all. You know, he... He could have easily been 6-2 up himself. Certainly the first few frames were scrappy, one on the pink or black or something. And then even certainly at 7-3 as it ended up, you could have couldn't possibly have foreseen what was coming because he looked down and if anything, I was even conscious, I think the week or two before he'd lost in the Welch Open final to Ken, 9-3. Yeah. Nine, nine, yeah. And again, as I always say, 
we're going to talk about the final. I was 7-3 up and I missed an easy red with the rest. I just needed red and black. It was the last red. I think if I pot that, pot the black, I go 8-3 and I think I win 10-4, 10-5, 10-6. You know, prices are very grand. But obviously from that, goes 7-4. He did ton, 7-5. We did an interval then. But I, I remember feeling calm enough, grand, 7-5, okay. Then he'd um, another ton, 7-6. And I can clearly remember I made an 80 break to go 8-6 and kind of think, right, well, That'll soften your cough now. But again, he went ton, ton, 80 to go 9-8. And I can so remember, like, making those clearances. It was just so noisy. I can remember, like, being the chair and you'd be about to pot the black on another 100 break and literally actually saying to yourself, just wait for the noise. And as soon as the black hit the, the back of the leather, the roar was unbelievable. But I said, um, obviously, the last couple of frames that we talked about, but it was an amazing burst. But that was the thing, you couldn't see it. And probably that's similar with Matthew Stevens. It wasn't he it wasn't like he was close to form, he was like he was badly out of form. And it's mm-hmm. literally like a uh, the flick of a switch came a totally different player. Sometimes you can be ahead of a player, even have a lead, and you still feel no, he's playing well, no complacency here or anything like that. But Paul just looked like, you know, nearly yeah, it wasn't his day again. He was carrying a hangover from the previous final. And here we go again. That kind of mentality, but with the swing of one frame totally transformed yeah he was amazing <laughs> looking back and Sean just going back to that match earlier on the, that we were talking about where Paul knocked out the defending champion Matthew Stevens, a real low moment of that week I remember I think it was the Friday night and someone came into the press room and informed us that Matthew's dad Morel who we all knew because he used to spend a lot of time in the press room had passed away and we've got to remember as well Matthew was still so young at that time do you think that tragedy, losing his dad at quite an early age, was something that really set Matthew back in his career? Yeah, I don't think there's any question about it. Same thing happened to another young player called David Gray, who you know, mm. was a ranking event winner himself and lost his father when he was a very young man. These were guys that I'd known from the junior scene. Of course, there was a, quite an age difference between David and I and Matthew and I. Um, but my, you know, I remember Morel. Um, you know, I, I'm sort of old enough now to you know, go back almost like that saying about, you know, you remember the guys who shook Sinatra's hand. I, I'm one of the few that remember, you know, these guys' fathers, as I say, David Gray's father, uh, Matthew's father, Mark Selby's father. Uh, these were all very, very important people in their lives and, and, and you know, uh, just were big driving forces, big supporters. Uh, and all of that aside, it was your dad. Your dad. Uh, and, you know... Somebody who in your life, you know, as a bloke, your dad should be your best mate. And um, I think certainly for certainly for David Gray, certainly for um, Matthew Stevens, that was the role that their fathers played. Um, obviously, young men with a lot of money in their pocket, their fathers would have kept them on the straight and narrow a little piece. Uh, good advice at the right time. Uh, big management figures looking after their interests. So to lose somebody so pivotal at such a formative part of your life, uh, is, is tragic and um, you know it probably doesn't get spoken about enough with Matthew uh, probably for good reason because it would drag up so many upsetting memories but I, I would I would put I would put that as a as a as a reason you know people talk and it, it makes me slightly uncomfortable if I'm honest people talk about Matthew Stevens having underachieved he had a wonderful career sure a wonderful career but he, he could have achieved more he he didn't maximise his potential. And and who knows, uh, had he not have suffered the tragedy of losing his best mate, 
his dad all wrapped up into one. Maybe we'd maybe we'd be sat here talking about Matthew Stevens as as one of the best players of all time. Yeah, and still on the tour now, of course, and still a dangerous opponent to anyone he comes up against. But after Paul Hunter had knocked him out of that Masters, Fergal, he went on then to beat Peter Ebden in the quarterfinals, then played that semi-final against Hendry and beat him. And he said afterwards, I've beaten the defending champion and I've beaten someone who's won it six times here before. So, of course, I can win it. And I think that line actually sums up Paul in a way because he didn't try to talk himself up or talk his opponents down or anything. He just spoke honestly uh, about how he saw things. And he had obviously taken a lot of confidence from those wins. And that's what he was like. He was full of confidence for a goal without ever trying to talk anyone else down. Yeah, yeah, no confidence. And it's more like kind of quietly, nothing arrogant, arrogant about him. No kind of airs or graces or edge or just wasn't, wouldn't be consciously thinking, well, I'll say this before an effect. We'll just literally, you know, ask him a good question and he answered honestly. I think that was part of his, his appeal. And even when he went on and won a couple of them, even with, obviously with three masters then, uh, never, when he won or lost, it was the same. Obviously, apart from winning, you wouldn't say when he won all three, as great as wins as they were, all comebacks, that in any way he gloated with the wins. And I was by the same token, then if you take the other side of the scale, when he lost in 03, the semi-final to Ken, mm-hmm. when he had one yeah, like 15-9 up to lose, like it's a, it's a horrendous defeat, let's not get away from it. But I mean, he took it as, as gracious as any person possibly could. And I think that that was part of his, uh, I suppose it was a strength, but also part of his appeal, that there was no great, you know, win or lose, he'd be off out and he'd still be the same guy, you know what I mean? Apart from the actual enjoying watching watching him play, because obviously he had a nice style, you know? And let's stay with you, because we have to talk about your campaign. And in the first round, you played Mark Williams. Now, you'd played at the conference centre the year before, gone out in the first round. So this was the first match you'd ever won there. And I remember you saying afterwards, special to beat the world number one here. And it really was quite a landmark to achieve. Your first ever win at the Masters is against the world number one and reigning world champion. Do you remember much about that match? I remember it was 6-5 and maybe there was one or two frames I could have, should have won. And then it came back. I think I made a decent enough break in the last maybe a 50-odd. So that was a big win. Obviously, Mark, as I said, was world number one, world champion. And then the Masters. That, you know, I was well aware of as a kid growing up the significance of the Masters and playing every conference. And even the previous year, I was four one up on Stephen Lee and lost six four. So yeah, to beat to win any match, you know. But I I more just remember there was a kind of I think even before that match, I was due. Alan Chamberlain might have been due to referee, and they deliberately changed it just to like avoid any you know, issues as such. Because of what had happened in the Nations Cup final, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um. Because so there was probably a sense of I'm going to say calm, but more I'm going to say in, in my shell kind of calm rather than a, a, a quietly confident calm in my game. So I obviously was playing well enough and it was a good win. So yeah, just it was, I was in, um, maybe it was just calmed down. So my mind probably wasn't as preoccupied at getting ahead of myself. I do kind of remember that just kind of taking it match by match and not getting ahead of myself. Where there's been other terms maybe. You get to the quarterfinals, you think you're grand, you get to the quarterfinals, all of a sudden that night you can't sleep because you're not just thinking about the quarterfinals, you think this could be my weekend and before you know it, you go out the next day in the quarterfinals and you've played bad because you've literally got ahead of yourself, you need to plan who's going to be coming out for the final on Sunday and how, you know, you can get it. That wasn't the case, it was quite quite calm and just, okay, that was a great win, yeah, okay, on to the next one and again, 
I suppose probably in the fact the next one we're obviously playing Ken, mm. we're playing a lot at that time. Um, and again, just the caliber of players, you couldn't get too really far ahead of yourself. They were quite calm, played well against Ken, beat him. I think it was four and a lot, but one six two. So it was a comprehensive win, but played well. And then that week there'd been a lot of a lot of seeds that got beaten. Um, I suppose it was probably a bit of a, winning the top sixteen is still a bit of a surprise. Maybe I got to the semi, and also Dave Harold. I think he had a win against Parrot, didn't he? Was he 5-1 down? And... Yeah. Well, I'd like to talk to Sean about that match, actually, because uh, Parrot was 5-1 up, and he missed match ball green with the rest, and things just sort of crumbled for him. And Sean, Dave actually ended up turning that one round to win by six frames to five, which was amazing against a player of Parrot's quality. But at that time, that was where we were, because we had this wonderful top echelon of the top four, five, six players, but within the top 16, top 32, by then there was probably more depth than ever. And someone like Dave, who only ever won one tournament, but what a good player he was all round. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one thing I would say from a player's point of view, you know, having played at the Masters now for a few years, the table at the Masters, no matter where we play it, just seems to be like glass every time you play on it. The balls move around the table so easily. And, of course, that would have suited somebody like Dave Harold, who had a very short action, a very loose grip. It was like his game was actually designed for those very reactive, very slippy, very spinny conditions. Um, you know, had a, uh, you know a, 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 an incredible run that year. Um, and it looked like going through the scores. It looked like every time he got in, he scored. Um, similarly to the semi against Fergal, you know, every time he got in, he, he seemed to make a break. So sometimes you get that with players whose games are just built around potential and possible playing surfaces. And it, and, it, and looking back through the records, you know, it's clear that Dave was very, very suited to that kind of setup. So he played you, Fergal, in the semi-finals, and you won the match by six frames to four. Now, we all knew the two of you in one of the biggest matches of your careers. It was going to be such a battle. The two of you were going to give so much. And it did go on a long time. I remember you coming in the press conference afterwards and saying, it's almost time to go back out and play the final now. But what do you remember about that contest? And in particular, as I recall it, there was a real feeling in the air of the fact that this was meant this a match that meant so much to both of you because to get through to a Masters final for either of you at that point in your career was just going to be so colossal. Yeah, and I remember even as well, even with regard to, you wouldn't be overly conscious of the money as such because, you know, you're playing in the Masters. But also, I remember even a year or two before, somebody got to the semis, so they won two matches. I remember where they got them on 40 grand already just for winning two matches and that. And obviously it was the same as well. You're on 40 and of course it went up to 88 if you won. Um, because I remember even thinking after or after the final, somebody was saying, friend of mine, we're talking to friends of Dave, and after the final, the time he goes, Yeah, he says, we're kind of okay, he's disappointed, but look, he still had 40 grand, it's still a lot of money, which it was. So the money was a, a slight uh, factor. But again, on, on that match, as far as I remember, it was five one up. Hadn't been an amazing match. Dave, as Dave didn't give up and dug his heels in, five four, and then the last one actually being the black. <clears throat> I put a good long black and came around the came around the angles. Just about looked like it could maybe go in the middle and caught the far jaw to stay out. So I remember clearly that relief of he didn't obviously want to be five all, particularly if you'd have pot the black. So just it was actually more just relief. Not so much even that it got to the final, but that I hadn't lost that particular match after having the lead. Um so yeah, we can still <clears throat> I would say yeah, excited, but 
was was keeping a lid on it. So yeah. we're now in that final. You're playing Paul Hunter the next day. And Sean, in many respects, that final was a bit like your world final that was to come a few years later against Matthew Stevens, who we were talking about. Because whoever won, it was going to be a breakthrough moment. It wasn't like one of you was trying to win it for the second time. And it was very similar, that Masters final between Fergal and Paul. This was going to be a huge, huge day in someone's career. Your memory of matches from the past is remarkable. Can you remember much about the day and the feeling going into it? Well, it was a very special moment because it was the first final I'd attended back in the days of Benson and Hedges and Gallagher's, who were their promotional company. Um, all the competitors were invited to the final. And it was back in the days of dinner suits and the first two or three rows of the seats were all the dignitaries and WPBSA directors, the chairman and his wife. And we were all invited as players. And I remember being sat there probably on the second row. You could have reached out and touched the table uh, almost um, watching as Paul went on this onslaught of big breaks through the second session. Um, and that was my first real taste of that atmosphere. Fergal earlier said that the roar, the the, the raw noise that the crowd made as Paul mounted this comeback, it was honestly, it would make the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. Uh, and 20 years later, 20 odd years later, I very rarely played in a more raucous atmosphere than that very night. I've got a quick funny story about that mm -hmm. because <clears throat> obviously I'd played in the event and played on that table, but and I'm sure Fergal won't mind me saying Halfway through the deciding frame, it opened up as quite a tactical affair, obviously, for, you know, for obvious reasons. Fergal was assessing this one particular shot and some bloke shouted out from the back row in the conference centre, um, hurry up, I've got to be at work in the morning. <laughs> it was quite funny, you know, it broke the, it broke the tension, broke the ice. it was quite funny. Didn't hear him. Um, 15 or so years later, an exhibition down in Kent. And I walk in and the, the guy who meets me at the door to meet me to do the show tells me with such pride that the table I'm going to be playing on that night was the table from the 2001 Masters. All right. And they had the very table. So an hour or so into the show, I start telling the story about the man who shouted out. Well, the man who shouted out work behind the bar in this club. <laughs> so they have the shelter and the table. It was a, it was like a, a, a complete homage to the Masters. But sitting there, being there, you know, experiencing that um, that environment for the first time, you know, was just, well, it was magic. And it, and it was uh, it was an incredible experience, you know, for the neutral. It was uh, it was amazing to be there. I think we need to do an episode called Sean Murphy's Memories of Things People in the Crowd Said During Matches, because that's three of those stories we've had already today. <laughs> good concentration. What's that? He's good concentration, doesn't he? Yeah, well, exactly. Maybe more focus on the table required. But, Fergal, let's talk uh, about how you were feeling between sessions, because you've actually spoken earlier on in detail about how the match went. But you're 6-2 up now going into the last session of the Masters. Can you remember much about how you felt at that time? Yeah, it was against, still quite quite calm. And again, of course, in relation, we're probably going to talk about Paul's plan B. Mm. Um, his, how he spent his mid-session. But of course, typical me, obviously, Gene was over for the final. And again, me being me, of course, 
she obviously in the room. I kicked her out to try and have a rest or have a, you know, have a kip or whatever to prepare for the final. So I remember then afterwards, it was like when you heard the story about Paul, it was going all typical. I said, he won. Andy got lucky in the afternoon. I was like, I got nothing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, that was, but no, it was all, there was no great drama, drama with it because I can six to, I hadn't played magnificent, but it was, I was comfortable. I think a couple of years before when I was in the final of the Plymouth that whole day, because then it's been a late, that was a long, long day. But I'd definitely gone through that long day and suppose probably winning had helped. The second final, even though it was the Masters, wasn't as big a deal. I have far more memories of the day playing the final in Plymouth than the Masters. By the Masters, it my second one. It wasn't such a big deal. I, I, you know, I wouldn't say it was absolutely flying in cock-a-hoop, but no, I was grand. I had no, no issues, no great concerns. You know, so it was just business as usual. There's no no big drama. I remember obviously going out a couple of minutes before you were introduced, being aware, and you're walking out to the arena. Yeah, you're aware of the significance of that moment. But I wasn't, you know, fearful as such. We've gone through the details of the match, I think, you know, in, in the context of earlier things we talked about. But Sean mentioned the memory uh, there of the uh, atmosphere in the conference yeah. centre that night and how special it was. I know at the time you weren't thinking about that. You were, as you said at the beginning, gutted about how it had turned out. But obviously, much as you would have liked to have been a Masters champion, do you look back now and think it was a good experience to be part of, something that... Is a night you still remember and will remember fondly apart from the results? Yeah, exactly. I think that's probably good experience. And again, maybe after Paul's passing, that, that becomes more relevant and more perspective. Um, and as I was going to say, okay, the only thing worse than losing in a final is watching somebody else lose in a final because you still have the day. You can't get a stage where it's nine all to the last frame, effectively last shot. And if you pop that last ball, it's been a great day. And if you lose, it's a horrendous day. It's the same experience from breakfast till nine all. So that was a great day. And again, you'd more you'd have more regret that you didn't make more finals rather than you lost. You know, so now it was very special atmosphere. And again, I still think the best frame I ever won at nine eight down after that mm. breaks um, was was that frame because it was actually forty behind in that one as well. Bearing in mind I'd hardly pot. It was nearly a moment as you're getting out of your chair. You were nearly. You really contemplate not getting out of your chair. It felt like I just taken so many blows and hammering that it was like hard to, you know, get back in. I kind of clawed my way back in it and made a pot of pink to go nine off. So that was a great frame <clears throat> on the base of where I was mentally. But I still had enough to dig out and win that frame. And obviously, if I had chances, obviously in the last, and if I'd have won that, then you'd really be going, God, that was. You probably look back at that frame more and go, that was a great frame. You won nine, eight behind, 40 behind to dig in. But because I didn't take advantage of the chance in the last, that's kind of forgotten. But no, great day. So it's still now you watch a, you watch a final, any final being introduced and the handshake at the start with the trophy. And you're still buzzing. You still love to be there. You're still killed to be there. You'd still, if you told me you're going to you're get, going to get to the Welsh Open final, but you're definitely going to lose, you'd still bite your hand off because... Apart from the build-up of winning the matches, just on that day, walking out to play a final is special again. You don't want to get too caught up in that. You know, you have to win it to be any way good or any way positive. Um, so now, as I said, probably regardless of Paul, um, it ended up being a positive. And then also after, as disappointed I was, because friends had come out from Ireland, I was up till six in the morning. So at six in the morning, 
after the final, I was actually talking. I was, at this point, now, now sitting beside Paul. He's the trophy mm-hmm. sitting beside me. literally on the same chair, talking and just obviously talking about the match in a great way. So that's a, a very good memory as well for that that kind of... And again, I wouldn't be overly close with Paul. You know, he was probably younger, more fun than I was. Um, but there was always that con- connection, you know what I mean, um, from playing. There's a bit that when you go to players in a big match, there is that kind of relationship or memory between between two players. So, um, yeah, no, I, I said, I wonder if I don't really look back on it too much because, because in a sense, it came to terms if there was disappointment because it's, if we could do it again, it was the right result that Paul won for the way our lives, unfortunately, panned out. So, you know, I'm more than happy in a sense to talk about it. But there would have been a time after, yeah, you wouldn't talk about it, you wouldn't think about it because it was, you know, a hurtful, painful memory, you know. I remember sitting with you actually at that get together afterwards and being up until 7 a.m. And all these people who don't think you're a party animal, Fergal, they should have been there that night. <laughs> Sean, the plan B story that Fergal alluded to there, just as we wrap this up now, it was the first of Paul's three Masters wins, all in remarkably similar circumstances. And there was a lot of coverage of that story in the comments he made the next day. I know for a fact it's a story that's massively grown legs in the years since, but all these things do. And that was the thing with Paul. Once all that had happened and he'd got those headlines and he'd had that big win, he was someone who was known quite well, even by people who weren't that into snooker. He was someone who was a, a genuine mainstream star. He was, uh, and he transcended the sport, you know, into mainstream celebrity. And he he, he obviously had the golden locks. He was very attractive, a good-looking lad. Uh, he, you know, he, he had a bit of a wild side. Uh, and, of course, Plan B... Uh, was the story that started all of that. Uh, an amazing story. Somebody I got to know very well, you know, um, through the stories that Brandon Parker used to tell me, uh, who was managing him at the time. Of course, he would have been in, in, in the opposing corner to Fergal uh, in, during that championship, obviously once uh, after Paul had passed away, such tragic circumstances. Uh, Brandon and I went on to become best friends and, and he managed my affairs until he passed away a few years ago as well. And some of the stories he told me about Paul were, uh, well, they're not for publication anyway, that's for certain. But, um, you know, I think Plan B was the start of it. Uh, he, he was a real character. And as I say, he, he, he was one of the true, you know, celebrities of sport around that time. He was on every TV show, every game show. Uh, he was competing with all the other stars. And when we accepted the Helen Rollinson Award on behalf of the Paul Hunter Foundation, for their contribution to sport, sports personality in 2008, I think it was, or something like that, nine maybe. Um, you know, we accepted it on behalf of the Hunter family with very, you know, great pride uh, and remembered him, you know, very, very fondly. I remember I remember first crossing paths with him as a junior player. This, you know, long-haired, blonde, flowing, locked boy walked in from Leeds. We were just kids, like eight, nine, ten years of age, looking up to this lad who was going to turn pro. And he was just special, you know. He was just, he he just whatever whatever it is, whatever that X factor is, he had it. Um, those things you can't teach. He he was just different, uh, and um, it takes a very special player to come out on that particular night. We talked about it now the final six two behind. He had four tons that night, and he and he he, he rode the wave. It takes a very special player to do something like that, and um, he was special on and off the table. 
Fergal, a final thought from you, because we all know whenever the Masters finishes, all our thoughts turn to Sheffield and the World Championship and every season finishes there. And that was the season which finished with, as we said earlier, Ronnie O'Sullivan becoming world champion for the first time. Very often when a player wins their first world title, it feels like the end of something that they've completed their mission and become a world champion. But much like when Stephen Hendry had won it for the first time in 1990, I think Fergal, when Ronnie won it in 01, we felt this was just the beginning. And it's turned out to be that way. Yeah, because obviously, particularly when he won the UK so young, it was, it was just presumed he'd be the youngest ever. That never materialised. So by all one, it was like, you know, doubts maybe he mightn't do it, but it's still quite erratic. But once he won that, and hindsight has proved for himself the difference in that the monkey was off his back, at least he'd won one. So now he could really probably, with that out of the way, concentrate on, on effectively improving, which he did. And I said... In different stages, he improved his cue, changed his cue action. Next stage was then working with Reardon, so added on the tactical. And then even another probably few years later, obviously work with Steve Peters. So the emotional side that it's still been a bit of a weakness, even though he had a better game, better tactical knowledge. Kind of that. So then he brought the three of them together, tied him with probably the fitness as well and the running, which obviously, apart from making him fitter, more stamina, also helped with mental state. And then, you know, it was that amalgamation that long journey that he became you know the greatest ever well that 2000 to 2001 season was so memorable in so many ways the masters was a big part of that and both of you played your role in that memorable week in london in early 2001 thanks so much for sharing your memories of it with us today thanks very much thank you thanks to all of you for listening to the wpbsa podcast the official podcast of snooker's world governing body you can follow our social platforms and our website for more news and features I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.